This is They Create Worlds, episode 55, Blizzard, Hellfire, and the World of Warcraft. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. It's been cold out. It's been really cold and freezing. Snow has been falling, but that's okay. We can warm ourselves around the glorious warmth of Hellfire. We can just go deep underground, find that Hellfire, and bring it back up in order to warm the people from this blizzard. I don't think that's a good idea, Jeff. Why not? I think whenever people bring Hellfire to the surface, it just... There's there's lots of death and destruction and clicking. So very much clicking. But but we'll be warm. And then there's a ring. Quick, get it before your friend does. Oh. Darn. Too late. Oh, no. No, I need that ring. <laughs> it's the best thing that gives me all the stats so I can shoot the big fireballs and I can win and stay warm. <laughs> That's right. We are, of course, talking about Diablo. And if we are talking about Diablo... We are talking about Blizzard, but most of you probably already knew that because we've been talking about Blizzard for a while now. A whole episode, really. The start of Blizzard from Silicon Synapse, which has no relation to Cinecone Synapse, or any kind of silicone, really. Yes, that would very much change the meaning. Oh, yeah. Way so much. All the way up to their acquisition by Davidson and Associates. They decided that, you know, we want you to make some games and we're going to give you complete autonomy. And they're practically the only company to actually allow that. So they made Warcraft, then Warcraft 2. We don't know if they quite made Warcraft 2 Beyond the Dark Portal yet, but they certainly made Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness. Respect the lore. Because now there is lore. That's right. There's some nice guy who made some lore for us. And then there's that one time they went to CES and went, Hey, you guys are doing the same game we're doing, except on a different console. That's pretty cool. Sort of. Maybe what are we you should doing? team up. <laughs> what are you doing? Well, uh, we made this Warcraft game. What are you guys doing? We're working on this uh, isometric XCOM roguelike Diablo-y thing. That looks cool. You want someone to uh, give us some pretty box art and say, put it as a trailer inside of uh, Beyond the Dark Portal? Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be real cool, man. Sure, we'll, uh, we'll take you Condor guys and we'll just call you Blizzard North or something. Well, not yet. There's still Condor. Oh, fine. Still Condor. Now we get to actually hear real history as opposed to <laughs> Jeffrey's random made-up facts. Well, no, that's, an, that's a pretty good summary of what we covered in the first episode, very briefly. And we stopped kind of right in the middle of Diablo because there are two parts of Diablo development. There's that initial work that was done by Condor when Condor was just like, we like roguelikes, we like XCOM, maybe we should put them together. Then there's the period of development that happened after they entered into a publishing arrangement with Blizzard, which, of course, was looking to greatly expand its offerings because Davidson wants them to 
publish more and more stuff, obviously, because that's good for the business. At this point, as we said, the game is turn-based. And the game is single-player only. And the final game is only turn-based if you play it on my 486. Yes. There is no story. There are no cinematics. There is no lore. This is just very much a roguelike with the twist being that it's fully graphical and it's isometric. Blizzard thinks this game looks pretty cool. Blizzard's kind of on board with things. Blizzard is not going to do turn-based. Blizzard has moved beyond turn-based. This is the period of time when turn-based is giving way all across the computer game industry. And Blizzard itself, of course, has just hit it really big with a decidedly not turn-based strategy game in Warcraft. Just as Davidson generally lets Blizzard do what it wants, Blizzard is mostly leaving it to the Condor people to do their thing, but it is not going to be turn-based. And David Brevik is not happy about this at all. David Brevik is the driving force behind the game at Condor. He's one of the co-founders of Condor, along with the Schaefer brothers, Max and Eric. He likes roguelikes, and he likes XCOM, and this is the game he's making. Making it real-time would ruin it. It would take all the strategy out of it that he was very carefully putting in and turn it into a click fest, which is true. But that's the wave of the future, and Blizzard is pretty insistent. But so is Brevik, and so they break the impasse by Blizzard basically using a little bit of uh, reverse psychology or a little bit of psychology. They're like, okay, fine, we want it this way, you want it that way. What does the rest of your company think? So Brevik and the Schaefers put it, not quite to a vote, but put it out for discussion amongst everybody. They're like, well, we've got this turn-based thing. Blizzard thinks we should be kind of real-time. And everyone's like, real-time? That sounds cool. So at that point, David Brevik basically has to be like, okay, fine, we're going to do it real-time. And I mean, today he admits that, obviously, that was the totally correct thing to do. The first time that they had... Their mighty warrior, because at this point there are no classes, there's just the warrior. Uh, Their mighty warrior be swarmed by a group of skeletons. Suddenly it was like, okay, now we're doing something here. It's madness whenever you get too many things on you at once. Exactly. So, I mean, this, this really changes the game and changes it for the better, everybody agrees. So that's one hurdle. There's another thing that's going on during the period of Diablo's development going on down at Blizzard. Warcraft and Warcraft 2 are multiplayer games. In the case of the original Warcraft, it's one-on-one, orc versus human. In Warcraft 2, it's far more massively multiplayer. total of eight people can be playing each other at the same time. And boy, did we do that, didn't we, Jeff? Oh, yes. (laughs) There may have been massive LAN parties. That's right. And they had to be LAN parties for the most part, because this is still very beginning of the Internet. The World Wide Web is becoming a thing at this point. Internet portals are becoming a thing at this point. But Warcraft 2, coming out as it is in 1995, was just missing this wave. So Warcraft 2 is still IPX. It is still network protocols. It is not Internet play. Well, network protocols in the sense of LAN-based network protocols. Right, exactly. 
It's not TCP IP. No. The best you get as far as that goes is modem. And yeah, we could do the modem thing. And we had to kind of jerry-rig our own driver knit codes. And <laughs> if it wasn't for me knowing someone who knew how to do that and then memorizing said code, which I sadly do not still have memorized, it wouldn't have happened. But there were workarounds. We talked about this in the context of id Software and Doom as well, because, of course, Doom was not Internet-enabled. But very quickly, third-party software came about that allowed you to play these games on the Internet. The most popular general-purpose kind of Internet tunneling program in this time period was a program called Kali. I'm sure you probably remember that because I think at one point it even came bundled with Warcraft 2. I don't know offhand, but I do have my original disc. I mean, if, if you bought it earlier, it might not have at that point. But at some point, my I know mine came with it. Kali allowed you to fake it over the Internet. You do all your IPX setup and then you run it through Kali and then it takes care of the matchmaking. It was not a free program. Basically, they gave you a, a certain number of hours for free. You could play it for 30 hours for free. I don't know what the actual was, but that's a nice round number. Play 30 hours for free, then at that point you have to pay, not a subscription, just a one-time fee to actually unlock the program for good. It was shareware, essentially. And this obviously came to the attention of the people at Blizzard. And they were using Kali to play Warcraft 2 and other people, you know, people out in the world were. And like I said, I think they may have even made a deal at one point to actually package Kali with Warcraft 2. We didn't use it because of the aforementioned restrictions, and we were poor little kids. Didn't want to pay our 30 bucks for a program or whatever, but that was definitely something that was out there. Because of Kali, the Blizzard people really wanted to get their games internet-enabled. This is something that they could see was going to be the future of playing these kind of games. At this point, though, that was not... Simple? Mm, yeah, just a bit. With the, the resources needed, it really didn't make sense. You couldn't really do server farms in the way we think of them today. You really couldn't host everybody that was going to be playing your game on your own servers. You could, but I mean, the cost of that would just be... Astronomical. Exactly. But what you could do is you could create some kind of matchmaking service, some kind of lobby where everyone comes together, a place where you join a game, and once everyone joins the game, the matchmaking service helps connect the computers together, but then the computers are running the whole thing peer-to-peer themselves. Have a little chat in there, have some pretty graphics, it'll work. This is the origin of Battle.net. It's because of Kali and because of this coming craze for the internet, and it's because Blizzard has always been rather multiplayer-focused in all of its PC games. One of the big things, as we talked about last time with Warcraft, they wanted Dune 2, but they wanted two-player Dune 2. They didn't want single-player Dune 2, and they did Warcraft. So they're very early on this concept of having their own peer-to-peer matching system. I mean, this is, this is very early for that. And definitely, I mean, with... Warcraft 2, they had that spawning capability where really only one of you needed to have the CDs and then you could just install it on a bunch of your friends' PCs Mm -hmm. all locally and you couldn't play the game like the story on those spawns. 
but you could play multiplayer with whichever computer with the host. Exactly, because they really saw their games as multiplayer experiences and they really wanted as many people as possible to experience their games in that manner. That's quite simply where Battle.net comes from. So they have the idea for Battle.net, and since they have the idea, they want to get it developed and implemented and out in the world quickly before somebody else steals their thunder on it. But they don't really have anything coming up at Blizzard proper that is going to be ready at the same time that Battle.net is going to be ready. We have this Diablo thing. Exactly. So they talk to the Condor people and they're like, we want to put this new Battle.net concept into your game Diablo. And everybody agrees to do that. So that's uh, another thing that gets tacked in there. Diablo is obviously, it's, it's kind of growing, morphing, and changing quite a bit here. It's getting more complicated. It's going to be real-time now, which involves a lot of rewriting. It's going to have Battle.net now, which involves a, not, a lot more work. They decide to do classes relatively late in development. So that's going to be a lot more work. They decide to do quests. The quests actually are another thing that come from Angbod, which is the roguelike that David Brevik particularly liked. And that particular roguelike, you know, roguelikes, one of the things that makes a roguelike a roguelike is that they have randomly generated dungeons, randomly generated levels. Angbod actually had certain pre-generated chunks that could be dropped in to a particular dungeon floor and thereby have something special within it, but something that was not randomly generated that would be the same all the time if it happened to appear in your game. That's exactly what a Diablo quest is. Very much so, especially Diablo 2. Yes, but also the first one. Yeah. So they decide to do quests, so that's another thing that they have to put in. The game is getting complex enough that a couple of things are going on. First, Condor which is still a contract publisher and has got other things going on as well, not just the Diablo project, but they are running out of money. It's hard being a contract developer. That is a hard thing to maintain, especially as your projects get more expensive and complex. So they are really starting to hurt for money. Uh, I think at the end of the very end of 1995, I think it is, the Blizzard people come to them and are like, you know, We're getting more and more involved in this game, and it looks like it's going to be a really good game, and we really want to keep our relationship going. Why don't we buy you? And this is the exact same time that the Condor people are being like, oh my god, we're running out of money. What are we going to do? I don't know what happens next. So this is fortuitous, because they both independently arrive at the same place at roughly the same time here, about December, I think, 95. And then in early 96, they actually consummate the deal. Blizzard, or rather Davidson and Associates, buys Condor, which becomes a subsidiary of Blizzard under the name Blizzard North, because they're up in Silicon Valley, and Blizzard is down in Irvine in Orange County near L.A. So this is how we get from Condor to Blizzard North. By the time Diablo is released, it is not a Condor game. It is a Blizzard North game. And that's why you see Blizzard North in the title screen and not Condor. That's right. The other thing that happens is because all of these last-minute changes are going on is that Blizzard realizes that they need to get directly involved in helping get this game finished. So they put a strike team together of certain key people within the Blizzard company to go up to Blizzard North and help finish the game. This kind of derails Blizzard a little bit because, you see, this is a period of time when Blizzard is trying to get a fair number of games out because Davidson really wants them to boost their profits. 
So they had this idea that they would do a very quick and dirty real-time strategy game where they basically just took the orcs and put them in space. They were going to do this really fast, just get it out there, start it in the middle of 96, have it out by Christmas 96, just so that they can keep their release calendar going. This is the game that is going to be StarCraft. It's not Warcraft in space. It is far more sophisticated. Exactly. But at this point, it's not. (laughs) And so they were really going to try to just get that out fast. Well, that doesn't work anymore when basically everyone that is on this relatively new StarCraft game is suddenly shifted over to Diablo. They leave like one or two people on StarCraft. That's it. Yeah. We'll come back to StarCraft, obviously. Very important. But suffice (laughs) suffice it to say for now, though, that this changes things a little bit (laughs) in the destiny of that game as well. So two other interesting things come together with Diablo at the last minute here. First of all is that once Blizzard starts taking more of a role in it, Mr. Lore, Chris Metzen, who we talked about last time, the guy that really infused lore into Warcraft for the first time, is brought in to do the same thing for Diablo. So at this point, Diablo does not have a story. This whole elaborate thing with King Leoric and all the evils in hell, the greater evils and the lesser evils and the sin war and all of that stuff. None of that is in the conception of the game that David Brevik and the Schaefers are creating. They are just creating a fun action game with demons. You don't have the little books that are random whether or not they show up in each playthrough that have little tidbits of the Sin War explained to you. Exactly. And you don't even have the immediate story about the king going mad and the son being abducted by the archbishop and taken into the depths of the sanctuary and and all of that stuff. None of that's there. Some of the quests were kind of already there. They had a quest revolving around an undead king, for instance, but it was not King Leoric. It was not this backstory yet. Chris Metzen worked with them to tweak the quests And he created this whole worldview and this whole lore and this whole story of the Diablo universe. Once again, there is Blizzard expanding the idea of we are a company that puts a great deal of lore behind our games. And once again, it is Chris Metzen that is leading that charge and putting that lore in. The other thing is, we talked about how Blizzard has developed this cinematics team, that they were very early on 3D cinematic cutscenes. So because they have this cinematic team, they want to use the cinematic team. And so they want to put cinematics into Diablo. There's an intro cinematic and an endgame cinematic. And when they start on these cinematics, there is no plot yet, because remember, we just said that. There's no plot to Diablo. So they had to, particularly the opening one, they had to make the cinematics somewhat generic, kind of mood setting rather than story beat. Because at this point, there is no story. They're doing this at the same time that Chris Metzen, maybe even a little before, I don't know the exact timeline, but roughly the same time Chris Metzen is starting to flesh out the lore. They're doing these cutscenes, and that ending cutscene of Diablo, where the hero takes the soul stone, at this point the whole soul stone idea had been developed, takes the soul stone and shoves it into his own forehead. That was entirely the cinematics team. 
Oh my, I thought that was story-based. <laughs> well, obviously it had to be once they had the cinematic. Well, yes. <laughs> but that was entirely just the cinematic people being like, wouldn't it be cool if we had this really dark ending? Yeah, let's do that. They just did that, man. They just made that. <laughs> and that pretty much had ramifications for the next two games. Exactly. But it, it's very interesting. This is the cinematics department at Blizzard during this time period is basically its own thing, doing whatever the heck it wants. And then everyone else figures out how to adjust to that. So I, I, I just think that's very interesting. It wasn't David Brevik, wasn't even Chris Metzen. It was the cinematics guys that came up with that. Now all of these elements are coming together. and. Diablo finally ships in 1996. Of course, we have another huge Blizzard hit on our hands. And, you know, the Davidsons are okay with it. We talked about the conservatism of the Davidsons. and We talked about how Ken Williams in our Sierra episode was very suspicious that the Davidsons sabotaged the Phantasmagoria series of full motion video point-and-click adventures because of their conservatism and because they didn't want to sell that kind of mature content. Maybe he's right, but on the flip side, you have Diablo. And there were times where they had them tone down the gore just a little bit. The butcher's room, for instance, was going to be a little more gory and risque than the final butcher's room ended up being. They basically let them go for it because not only had they promised this freedom but they had a track record now they'd done warcraft and warcraft 2 by the time diablo was released and those were massive hits so at this point they were going to trust blizzard to do what it wanted to do even though diablo's got hell and demons and topless succubi and all of this stuff they to their immense credit let that game be released without toning down much of it at all and of course, they're rewarded with another huge hit. I mean, I think it's fair to say that once a company does three years in a row, the games Warcraft, Warcraft 2, and Diablo, 94, 95, 96, at this point, it's time to just be like, all right, let it ride. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, nobody challenges Blizzard again that I know of. I mean, there might be some behind the scenes stuff that happened that we're not privy to at some point. but. Basically, nobody really challenges Blizzard ever, ever. I mean, they hadn't before, but they definitely aren't going to now because they are hit makers. They may take a while, especially with some of the later properties. Mm -hmm. But hey, when they hit, they hit big. They hit well. They may redo anything. They redid real-time strategy, but they define real-time strategy. Mm -hmm. They redid roguelike. They define a roguelike point-and-click adventure. Mm -hmm. There's companies that pretty much rip off versions of Warcraft, Starcraft, and Diablo, and even modern ones, mm -hmm. and continue on and take their spin on it. But at the core of it, it's very much in the Blizzard style, the Blizzard mechanic, the Blizzard presentation. Absolutely. This is the period of time, then, that the business side once again gets complicated. And this is the exact series of events that we already talked about in our Sierra episode. So we'll just go over them again briefly here, because, of course, 
Davidson was also bought. This company, CUC International. Walter Forbes, the head of that company, is on the board of Sierra. It's a conglomerate in hospitality services, but he decides that he wants to get into this big computer entertainment thing that all the kids are talking about. And so Walter Forbes decides to buy the biggest computer software entertainment company, which is Sierra at this point. They've just recently risen to have the largest market share in that space. Just computers, not talking consoles. Sierra isn't even in consoles. And the top edutainment company on computers, which is Davidson and Associates, buy both of those and turn them into a superpower developer that can just dominate the computer game space. And that didn't work out very well at all. Well, it worked out kind of fine. The problem is that Walter Forbes then merged his company with another hospitality company, HFS, to create Sedant. And then it turned out that Walter Forbes had been cooking the books. Nothing like embezzlement. Yeah. So this whole conglomerate kind of falls apart, not because of the entertainment aspect of it. The entertainment companies are not the problem here. It's the cooking of the books. And just so happens that they've just been bought by a company that is falling apart. The Sierra part of this story is very tragic. Uh, We talked about that. The Blizzard story, not so much. The Davidson-Blizzard part of this partnership kind of just keeps on keeping on. Obviously, there's a lot of changes in management. This company comes in, that company comes in. But it, it doesn't destroy Blizzard. Blizzard is just kind of still off in its own little world. The Davidsons are doing okay. It's the Sierra side of things that gets really messed up. But once the Sedant Corporation falls apart, that entire conglomerate is sold to Havas. Havas is a French company, a public utilities company that, again, is a company from outside the video game space that has become very interested in the video game space. I think we talked a little bit about how this was a period of time when, in France, the whole video game thing was huge. It was kind of, in a way, an extension of the dot-com boom there. I mean, in the United States, the dot-com boom isn't really associated with video game companies so much as it is just general internet companies. But in France, it was kind of an extension of that. And it was a period of time when the markets were pretty pumped up. There was a lot of capital in the markets. And so video game companies were hot and they were really becoming oversubscribed when they were going public, when companies like Ubisoft were going public. They ended up trading at many times their valuation because it was just, it was hot. There was lots of money in the bourse, which is the French stock market, to throw at video game companies. So video game companies are, are kind of big in France in this one brief period. So that's why a company like Havas is suddenly interested in this. And so Havas gets this whole package. It's while they're under Havas that StarCraft gets released. They're not under Havas for long, just a couple of years, but that's the period when StarCraft is released. Then, not long after that, Vivendi, another French utility company with a chairman that has really pushed his company into entertainment. He's decided to make Vivendi, which traditionally was a public utility, into one of the world's largest entertainment companies. And he's bought Canal Plus, a television station. He's bought a lot of other media. 
uh, they buy Universal, the movie studio. He's buying all of this stuff, and they buy Havas. They absorb Havas, and so Havas Interactive becomes Vivendi Interactive. And that all happens in the course of a year. Havas buys Sedant in 1998, and then before the end of the year, Vivendi buys Havas. But there's a brief period where it's actually Havas Interactive that releases StarCraft in 1998, kind of in that window there. So they get lots of money. Yes. They've got all these overlord changes, but they do continue to leave Blizzard alone. Blizzard remains this haven inside of all this turmoil. As Sierra is being slowly dismantled, studios closed one by one, Blizzard is pretty much left alone. This is another corporate overlord, or all of these, these three corporate overlords in a row here, boom, 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 are all companies that recognize the value of Blizzard and I think it's just because, I mean, at this point, the hits are rolling in. I mean, why would you mess with that? Yeah, four hits by that point. Mm-hmm. Four major hits and one expansion. That's right. Blizzard is, is doing okay. I mean, there's really not anything to talk about in terms of Blizzard's relationship with these corporate overlords other than to say that they changed a lot because Blizzard just keeps on keeping on. The game they're keep on keeping on with at this point is StarCraft. There isn't a huge amount of information out there on StarCraft's development right now, unfortunately. I wish we had a little more in-depth info about it. It did start as this kind of quickie game, this kind of quickie orcs in space kind of game, where they were just going to push something out before the end of 1996 just to have another product and then move on to something else. Diablo and the strike team that had to go help get Diablo out in time for late 96, early 97, kind of derailed that process. So they knew that they were going to have to take longer to do it. At this point, the RTS field is becoming very crowded. And so they know that if it's going to take them longer to do it, they can't really do this quick and dirty mentality anymore. They're going to have to do something better. They take the game to E3, a very early build of the game, and it's basically ridiculed. I mean, you can see screenshots of this version of the game online. It's very different from how it ended up. It's basically the Warcraft 2 engine. And so it's very bright, garish colors, which worked very well for Warcraft and for Warcraft 2, but doesn't work as well for this kind of gritty space vibe you're trying to do and it's top down and top down is beginning to feel very dated at this point and it just feels like it's orcs in space it's warcraft 2 in space it's a reskin there's nothing interesting about that anymore and so bob fitch one of the longtime employees of the company who's a programmer and an engine guy basically says okay i'm gonna go fix this i'm just gonna go sit alone in a dark room for a few days, and when I come out, we're going to have a StarCraft engine that is worthy of Blizzard. And that's what he does. He creates a brand new engine that is isometric rather than top-down and has more muted color schemes and all of that. So now they have a better engine to work with, but of course they're basically starting over at this point because once you have an isometric engine instead of a top-down engine, it's I mean, everything changes. I mean, pathfinding is completely different, for instance. 
Mm-hmm. You, you're basically starting over from scratch. All the art has to be redone to take into account that you have a three quarters view instead of a top down view. It's it's a whole new game at this point. I don't know where the inspiration for doing three balanced races comes from. Maybe it's out there somewhere, but if so, I haven't seen it. But obviously, the big thing about this is that the two factions aren't just reskins of each other. I mean, in Warcraft and Warcraft Two, you have some divergence. In the spells, uh, a paladin and a death knight go about their business in in somewhat different ways. A paladin can actually get more physical attacks. He comes up to you and hits you and he has healing spells and can turn the undead, while a death knight has ranged spells when he attacks normally and has area of effect damage and is really more of a mounted wizard than a knight. Mm-hmm. But for the most part... A grunt and a footman. More or less the same. Yeah, an elvish archer and a trollish axe thrower. Pretty much the same thing. They're just reskins. For this one, they decided that they would go all out and that they would create three different factions that were different in their play styles, but fairly balanced. But even though they're balanced, there's a rock, paper, scissors kind of effect where... What, the Protoss are a little better against the Zerg, the Zerg are a little better against the human, the human are a little better against the Protoss, or something like that. I mean, That is pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. There, there's some rock, paper, scissors effect going on, but not enough that if you're a really skilled player, if you're a better player than the other guy, you can still crush them, you know, even if it's a race that has a little bit of advantage technically. It's balanced, even with some of those built-in advantages. This was a game, I mean, when what little has been described about the development of it, it just sounds like it was a throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Basically, all the artists were just doing all sorts of crazy concept art, and then they picked out the ones that they kind of liked. Well, you know, that kind of looks like it could be an industrial building, so we'll use that for some kind of industrial building. I can see that as a barracks. We'll make that a barracks. You know, they're just kind of throwing all of this stuff out there. They're drawing influence. From all over the place, the Protoss are kind of influenced by the traditional kind of greys in alien abduction mythology, except that they didn't want them to be these slight weakling things. They wanted them to be big and brawny (laughs) and have those Warcraft shoulders, (laughs) you know, you know, so kind of taking the concept of the greys, but then like bulking them up, the glowing eyes, right? Uh, The, the Zerg, I mean, there are a lot of, I mean, everything from. Starship Troopers to Warhammer 40K have kind of those kind of insectoid hive mind races. Mm. Um, The Terrans, I mean, again, you can draw, just like with Warcraft, you can draw a lot of Warhammer analogies. You can draw a lot of Warhammer 40K analogies to Starcraft, but they weren't just doing... Starcraft is not just Warhammer 40K in Warcraft. It's much more sophisticated. <laughs> right. It is, not, it is not the Emperor. All hail the Emperor. <laughs> it is not the Emperor's fist upon the world. The Imperial Space Marines stomping against the Tyranids and the Eldar. That is not what Starcraft is. It is much more sophisticated. These are Protoss, who are totally not the Eldar. Well, and but at the same time, I mean, and obviously they're, they're taking a lot of stuff from 40K, but at the same time, it's also the space marines from aliens versus the 
bugs from Starship Troopers and the greys from Alien Conspiracy Theories. I mean, you know. Yeah, you could draw it from pretty much anything. Yeah, so they're, they're pulling from a few different places, and they're basically seeing what sticks. They know that they want the Terrans to kind of be these hillbillies in space. That's, that's something they did consciously decide to do. Particularly with the SCV. Yeah, and then with the cinematics, again, StarCraft is developing in a very haphazard way and doesn't have much of a plot until later in the process. So they have to be doing the cinematics at the same time they're doing everything else because cinematics take a long time to develop. But without much of a plot, they couldn't do plot-based cinematics. Obviously, they get a few in uh, before the end of development, but that's why you get some of these really random cinematics with these hillbilly (laughs) Terrans out and about getting eaten, (laughs) stabbed by Zerg or or incinerated by Protoss, because it's like they needed to have cinematics to capture the feel of the game, but they didn't have a plot yet. (laughs) You ran over someone's dog, Sarge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it's kind of a chaotic development from near as I can tell, but at the end of the day, it works. It really does. It's a massive hit. It really does. I remember I was obsessed with the coming of StarCraft back in high school. Nearly every day I'd be checking Blizzard forums going, what's the latest news? What's the latest this? What's the latest that? You can hear about uh, one guy, one coder I was reading about who was working on the game while his wife was giving birth in the uh, ER. So he's like next to her while, with his kid and coding away on, the, on his laptop. And his wife's like, well, why aren't you putting that away? He's like, this isn't just Warcraft. This is Starcraft. (laughs) It's big. This is going to be the biggest thing ever. (laughs) And I remember when I got my hands on that game, it felt like, you know, I could die now and feel like I lived through everything because (laughs) what other game could surpass this? And it sold millions and it was one of the foundational games in modern esports it is it is amazing how korea particularly really embraced starcraft and to this day still does tournaments around starcraft more so starcraft to these days but there are still some tournaments done in old starcraft and it's it's largely because it's a game that arrived at just the right time Because it had battlenet in it of course just like diablo did which made matchmaking relatively easy and they were starting to experiment with rankings they had a ladder system uh, wasn't perfect but they were kind of experimenting with ways to match make more effectively to pair players of similar ability together so they had battle net for matchmaking and they had a matchmaking system that kind of tried to rank players and pair them appropriately or not just pair because obviously you can again have update people playing this is the exact time when Korea has put a great emphasis on getting broadband throughout the entire country. South Korea was really, really ahead of the curve on broadband. There were massive government programs to get the entire country high-speed internet. And it's a relatively small country, so that helps. But still, they were ahead of everybody on that. And so they had the high-speed internet coming in at the exact same time as StarCraft is coming in. And the high-speed internet 
also leads to the beginning of this culture of PC bongs, these PC cafes, internet cafes, because South Korea was kind of in a strange situation. The country was becoming more and more developed, but the individual income and the individual cost of living wasn't necessarily advancing as rapidly as the development of the country as a whole. So they had the broadband network. But a lot of people still really couldn't afford to have computers and their own internet connection. That was still out of the reach of a lot of the public. And so these PC bongs, what we would call in the United States internet cafes, really became a big deal because they would get all of these PCs together. They would buy the internet time. They would buy subscription time on games like MMOs that required subscriptions. And then they would let people come in and play those games and charge them an hourly rate in the PC bong. You see a real explosion of online games in general in Korea during this time period. MMOs being the other big thing over there. And the MMOs tended to be local, either created in South Korea or created in Taiwan, a little bit in Japan, but more Taiwan and Korea itself. So StarCraft came at the exact right moment to capture the public's imagination there right when this whole culture was developing. And so, I mean, it's sold well over 4 million copies in, in Korea alone. It's, it's sold, you know, 10 or more million copies all over the world. Not all at once, but it was their fastest game to a million, I'm pretty sure, and then it, it just kept selling and selling. And selling again after the remastered version of StarCraft with the newer graphics, newer engine, and all that. Exactly. They're on a roll, so... What does the company do that is redefine the real-time strategy game, redefine the role-playing game or the roguelike, redefine the way we play games over the internet? Why don't we redefine the point-and-click adventure game, Jeff? That would go well, don't you think? Of course it did. Didn't. Blizzard, at this point, is certainly a company with a reputation for having a certain level of game. They are a company that is owned by larger conglomerates with lots of money. And so these companies, in in addition to not having to keep a close eye on them and micromanage them, also have the luxury of letting them not just take time with their games, but also only release games that are up to their standards. So in kind of the mid-90s, they decide that they want to make an adventure game in the Warcraft universe. They want to continue the story of Warcraft 2 in a point-and-click adventure game. And this will go really well because I remember seeing nice cinematics for it in one of the promotional things that were on one of the CDs for one of their games, Lord of the Clans. Ooh, that looks fun. You get to take the role of one of the orc younglings raised by humans who's going to, after the subjugation of the orcs, after all the stuff that's gone on and the remaining orcs that are in Azeroth, are going to be free and go off on their own. I think their twist on this, so to speak, was, I mean, it was going to be a pretty traditional point-and-click adventure game in terms of its puzzles. I think what they hoped was going to be the appeal is that it was going to be fully animated, that it was going to feel more like a living cartoon than some of the earlier games that had come out from Sierra and LucasArts that were... Still a little pixelated at this point. I'm I'm assuming, I don't know that for sure, but that that seems like it's logical because they they go to a Russian animation studio, which 
a lot of people did in this time period because Russian animators were cheap and they have them create these lush animations of all of these screens and all of these actions and everything. Very much in the vein of, say, Dragon's Lair. Sure. Except with point-and-click adventure mechanics instead of, you know, that whole... Twitch. You know, press A not to die thing. Yeah. Turns out that Russian animators are cheap for a reason. Really? <laughs> they're, they're not the greatest. And maybe that would have been okay, except then... LucasArts came out with the third Monkey Island game, Curse of Monkey Island. It was very beautifully animated. It went from the pixel graphics of the earlier Monkey Island games to something that looked very much like a living cartoon. And it just looked so much better than Lord of the Clans. So they got together, management got together, and they made the decision. Even though the game was essentially finished, it might have still been in QA. I don't know if it had gone gold. They might have been doing final bug fixing. But, I mean, it was done. The game was finished. But because they no longer felt it was up to the high standards that Blizzard had set for itself with Warcraft 2 and Diablo and StarCraft, they canned it. Didn't release it. And this harkens back to their founding, which we talked about in the previous episode. They were willing to axe the game because it would not work for the demographics that they are trying to put this game out for. It does not live up to their standards, so we're getting rid of this thing, even though it's done. Exactly. Funnily enough, the story remains canon. Interesting, yes. Now, they, they do eventually release a, a novelized version that tells that story, but I, I do find it funny that the story of how Thraw escaped slavery and reunited the Horde becomes very important to the way that Warcraft 3 develops in terms of story. They, they keep the lore, even though they dump the game. Yeah, if a game is not up to their standards, they won't do it. They did it again, won't go as much detail, but they did it again with StarCraft. They were going to do a first-person shooter spinoff mm-hmm. based on the, the Ghost unit. Nova Ops. Exactly. And it wasn't coming together. So they canned it. So they canned it. Blizzard will do that. And there are other games that they've canceled over time, Titan. too. Yeah, we'll get to that one. But uh, even even others, even before that, and probably even a few that we don't know about. But they are not a company that is afraid of canceling a game that's not up to their standards, even if it's almost done. That takes a lot of guts. That speaks very highly of them, especially when you got a game like Lord of the Clans. This is ready and ready to go out the door, even though it may not be up to your standards, because you have that name. It's probably going to sell like wildfire anyway, but they don't want to take the chance of sullying that name where they have a misstep. To this day, there are so many things that Blizzard puts out that people are obviously looking at and going, is this the time Blizzard's going to make a misstep? Is this the time Blizzard's going to fail and not do the right thing and have a bad hit? It hasn't happened yet, and the fact that it hasn't happened is because they're willing to do this. Mm-hmm. So now we enter a period in the company's history that is very much a sequel-driven period. We have Diablo 2. Diablo 2, there's not much really to say about it. It's done by the Blizzard North guys again, David Brevik and the Schaefers. It's basically just taking all of the stuff that worked well in Diablo and expanding it into a bigger world. Outdoor areas, more dungeons, more classes, more demons. More story. More cinematics. 
It's it's just more, more, more. And obviously it's done very well. I mean, there are... Less cheating. Yeah. Yes, exactly, because Battle.net is being refined, so now when you're playing online, it actually is being stored on Blizzard servers. It's not just a peer-to-peer matchmaking service. So you can't edit the character that exists on your computer in order to cheat. Yes, that, that's something we didn't really cover before, but the original Battle.net with Diablo was rife with hacks, cheats, whatever. You had invisibility hacks, you had rename hacks, you had duplication hacks, you had, oh, you, I'll just have this thing that just gives you all these fancy items, and yep. it was a madhouse. Absolutely it was. Probably still is a madhouse. I yes. don't know. Now, at this point in time, servers ain't so expensive as they were, you know, four years ago or whatever. And so now they'll (laughs) actually store the characters on their servers. And so you can't modify them on your computer and cheat anymore. The biggest thing to pull out of Diablo 2 really is that this is the beginning of the skill tree, the skill tree concept that becomes so ubiquitous everywhere. I can't say for certain that it was the very first game to do a skill tree. It wouldn't surprise me if it was not. Mm Mm-hmm. It was David Brevik's idea, and it was apparently inspired by the fact that they were playing a lot of Civilization II around the office at the time. So, as we talked about in our Civilization episode, Sid Meier came up with the concept of the tech tree, and then other developers like Blizzard North took that concept and applied it to character progression in the form of the skill tree where you get a bunch of points and then you put enough points in this skill and it unlocks the next skill down the tree and then that branches into two more skills and then you have multiple starting points and then they all have their branches and you customize a character from a set of abilities and stat bonuses depending on how you allocate your points. Leading to happiness and joy for all the slaughtering of demons. That's right. And it's also interesting, this is kind of a a side thing, but they, of course bring quests back. Quests work a little differently in this one than they did in the first Diablo, but they bring quests back and they decide to, rather than have you randomly happen upon quests out in the world, there are a couple that are still like that, but rather than having all the quests be like that, as they were for the most part in Diablo with the couple of quests that you got in town, just if you randomly happen to talk to the guy, then he'd give you the quest. They decide that there should be quest givers and that these quest givers should have something to indicate that they have quests. And they just explanation point. Yes. That feels like not a very significant thing, maybe, except that it's the beginning of that use of the exclamation point, which is, of course, (laughs) carried over into Warcraft 3 and then more famously into WoW. So there's they're pulling different influences from all of their games as they go along. There are elements of Diablo that end up coming into Warcraft, for instance, in, in World of Warcraft. And that's just a, another kind of wrinkle of the development of the games in this time period. So Diablo 2 is the one big sequel that they do. And the other big sequel that they do is the next Warcraft game. Warcraft Legends. Wait, what? <laughs> After doing two Warcraft real-time strategy games, they decided that they didn't really want to do another Warcraft real-time strategy game, or at least not the exact same kind. They wanted to do something that was a little more focused on a small group of characters. They 
came up with this concept of these hero units. And these hero units would have just a small number of follower units. And you'd have these little squads of units. And you wouldn't have any bases. You wouldn't have any base creation. You would just have these squads of units led by heroes. And it would still be a strategy game in real time, but zoomed in. And there would be this over-the-shoulder camera view on your squad, and your squad would be running around this world and and doing battle with these other squads. Uh, It was very similar to a game that Interplay released, a shiny entertainment game called Sacrifice. I don't know if it was directly influenced by Sacrifice or if that's just a coincidence, but basically if you want kind of an idea of what Warcraft Legends was going to be about, how it was going to function, it was kind of similar to this game Sacrifice. This game had a new lead designer in charge of it as well, a guy named Rob Pardo. Rob Pardo was another one of these guys that really, really enjoyed video games going way back and decided that he wanted to be involved in this business. He actually got a job at Interplay, uh, as it turns out, and got a job there as a tester. And then he kind of worked up from being a tester to being a junior producer who liaisoned with third-party companies making games for Interplay. So the company making the game would have a producer who was kind of running the project day-to-day, and then he was the Interplay in-house producer that made sure everything was working on the Interplay side, the milestones were being met and payments were being made and budgets were being kept to and all of that. So He had some influence on the game design, but not a huge amount of influence on the game design because he was interfacing with third parties. When Interplay went divisional in the mid-90s, he was assigned to the action division of the company. It turned out that his boss, the head of that division, ultimately decided to leave to found his own publisher called Point of View. It didn't last very long. It's very obscure. Pardo followed him, followed his boss to this new publisher. But that really wasn't working well for him either, and point of view didn't last very long. He wanted a place where he could be more involved in design. He never felt that he was getting that involved in that in these producer roles that he had. You know, of course, this is all Orange County companies. Interplay's an Orange County company just like Blizzard is. So he ends up kind of calling up Alan Adam or, or Mike Morham, I forget which one, and saying, hey, you know, could I maybe come work for you? So Alan says, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll bring you on board. At this time, there weren't really designers at Blizzard. They had programmers. They had artists. They had musicians. They had Chris Metz and the lore guy. But they didn't really have designers, people whose sole purpose were to define what the game would be. The closest they had to that was Alan Adam, uh, the co-founder who was also serving as president of the company. By this point, it was getting harder and harder for him to focus as much on doing everything because he's a programmer, he's kind of a designer, he's running the company, doing the business. That's a lot. So kind of in this late 90s period is when they first start experimenting with bringing on other people that are fulfilling the design role. That doesn't say other people aren't designing games. I mean, Pat Wyatt, for instance, played a huge role in designing Warcraft. He's the one that said, I want to do 
this Dune 2-like real-time strategy game. He was designing it, but he was also the lead programmer on it. You know, the design function was not separated from his function as a programmer. And that really, by the 1990s, was becoming more and more unusual because we're getting a lot more specialization. Teams are getting bigger. Games are getting more complex. So Rob Pardo is brought in, but there really isn't a place for him as a designer quite yet when he's brought in. So they make him a tester. His job is to test StarCraft. He's brought in midway through StarCraft development. But it's not just a go-find-the-bugs kind of testing situation. He works closely with Alan, who's taking a very strong design role in the game, to work out any design flaws that are there. So he's serving as a tester, but he's also kind of serving as a designer. It's kind of this hybrid thing, because that's really what he wants to do. And so for Warcraft, for Brood War, I should say, even before Warcraft, for Brood War, he actually becomes the lead designer on that. At this point, Alan kind of has to step back a little more, and he takes over as the lead designer there, and now he's the lead designer on Warcraft Legends. And so Rob Pardo is taking the lead on this game. They just discover when they get partway through it that it's not working. The problem with zooming in on a small group in a big battle is you kind of lose track of the big battle. Having the squad-based real-time strategy game is just not working. So they, they scrap it. They scrap Warcraft Legends and decide to rejigger it as a more traditional RTS. And so this Warcraft Legends then morphs into Warcraft 3. They don't completely disregard what they've done before, but they bring it back to a more traditional real-time strategy game. But because of the squad-based element that they had started with, they had started bringing in these RPG elements, including these hero units. So they keep that. They keep the hero units. They keep some of the RPG elements like side quests appearing on the map with our famous exclamation points and finding treasure and upgrading your heroes with treasure. They keep all of that, but they bring it back to a more traditional real-time strategy game with armies and base building and all of that as well. The other thing about Warcraft 3 is this is kind of Chris Metzen strikes again, because up to this point, you know, for Warcraft 2, he created some backstory, but it was still very much Alliance good guys, Orcs bad guys. For this game, he really wanted to do something different with the Orcs, with the Horde. He didn't want them to just be brutish bad guys. He wanted to give them some pathos. So he introduced this idea of this once noble race that had been corrupted by the Burning Legion. And a race that is looking to redeem itself and reestablish itself in a way that is not just evil. Go back to the traditions of their shamanistic culture. Exactly. And so this was not something that was really part of the lore before. This is a deliberate change in order to make the Horde more sympathetic because Metzen really wanted something that felt more nuanced for Warcraft 3. And then, you know, then you have the Scourge, you know, that can stand in and be the real 
evil guys again. There's really nothing redeeming about the Scourge. Not really. Even when they create the Forsaken in World of Warcraft, you still kind of get the feeling that the Forsaken are playing a very different game than the rest of us. Yeah. (laughs) Particularly at one point. Yes. So... We will remember the Wrathgate. Absolutely. So you've got those kind of things going on. You've got these more RPG-ish elements coming in. You've got this idea that not all the factions are bad, other than just the humans. Humans good, everyone else bad. You have other factions that are equally believable and viable as heroes. But even the humans get a little bit of evil to them. Well, sure. Stuff in the third one where there are certain elements of humans that are bad they take pleasure in torturing the orcs they take pleasure in subjugating them and there's other humans are like stop that yeah so you know just creating that that greater nuance and bringing in these rpg elements so then you get warcraft 3 which is certainly the most lore heavy so far certainly the most beautiful cinematics as we already talked about a little bit in the previous episode more factions more sympathetic factions, and this really feels like Warcraft is on the cusp of being something more than just an orcs versus humans real-time strategy game. It's during the development of Warcraft 3 that they start thinking, maybe we could make an MMO. This is, again, goes straight back to the fact that everybody in the company is a gamer. We talked about this before. Everybody in the company pretty much is a serious gamer. They're not only playing games in their spare time, they're encouraged to play games while they're in the office, too. It is a gamer-centric culture. As far back as Ultima Online, they were getting involved in MMOs and thinking maybe wouldn't it be great to have some kind of MMO. But this was particularly true during the height of EverQuest. Rob Pardo and other people in the company as well, but especially Rob Pardo, were really playing a lot of EverQuest. You will forever quest. (laughs) Except not, because there are very few quests. It's the most misnamed game ever. Okay, you will forever grind. Yeah, ever grind is what it should have been called. He liked the teamwork in it. He liked the problem-solving in it. But he and other people at Blizzard very much realized that a game like EverQuest was never going to have mass-market appeal because it was hard and repetitive. There were a few starter quests, tutorial kind of things. You just leveled up by killing the same monsters over and over again dozens, hundreds of times. You were forced to group at a very early level. It was not soloable past a certain point. The dungeons were super duper hard, and if you died, you took a penalty in experience, and you had to run back to the super hard place and get your corpse. You were always competing with other groups of players. If there was a big bad boss in a dungeon that you were trying to kill, you could clear all of the trash in the dungeon and then have a second group that was following along in your wake sneak by you and kill the big bad and get the reward. 
these games were frustrating and brutal. What the people at Blizzard wanted to do was take this gameplay style that they were having a lot of fun with and turn it into something more accessible. Alan Adam took the lead on this. This was the last game he worked on before he left the company. We mentioned before that he left in 2004 and then came back. He left before the game launched, but he did all of the principal design on the game. By the time he was, had left, all that was left to do was balancing and tweaking and whatnot. He's really the one that defined the game. They made a few important choices. First, they decided that it was important that the entire game be soloable, up to level cap. They still obviously wanted to have the big end game content that games like EverQuest were famous for, where you have the really big scary bads in the dungeons that you have to get dozens of players together to overcome. But they wanted everyone to be able to get to level cap solo because they really did feel that forcing players to group through most of the game would lead to a certain level of frustration amongst more casual players that maybe they're not as good of players and so nobody wants to group with them or gets mad when they group with them or maybe they only have certain times they can play and the times that they can play they can't ever find anybody and so for whatever reason if you have to group too much people are going to quit casual people they also wanted to make sure that it didn't have that steep penalty for dying because that's just plain frustrating they got rid of that And probably the biggest thing that they did is, of course, they introduced instanced dungeons. It's not just anyone can walk in and someone can walk in behind you and steal your kill. When it comes to dungeons, you and your group are the only person in that version of the dungeon, and you get to clear all the content without having to worry about anyone else stealing it from you. These are kind of some of the fundamental shifts that they made that are, of course, just bog standard in MMOs today. but. Blizzard was really the first one to bring them all together. Now, some of these individual elements, other MMOs might have done first. But in terms of bringing them all together, Blizzard was kind of the one that did it first. And that is something that Blizzard is known for doing. They may not be the first one to a particular genre, but they know how to put that Blizzard shine on anything. That's right. And it is addicting. Now, the one thing they did not plan to change was the... EverQuest system of leveling. They were going to have a few tutorial quests in the introductory spaces, and then it was going to be kill monsters, kill monsters, kill monsters, kill monsters, until you leveled all the way up to level cap. And this was the case quite a way through development. And then when they started opening it up, I mean, before beta, I mean, this would be alpha or maybe even pre-alpha, but when they started opening it up to people, they discovered that the people had a lot of fun questing in the starter zones, and they had a bunch of quests in the starter zones. And then when they left the starter zones and went out into the world, they became aimless. Uh, What do we do now? The quests are gone. Well, there's nothing to do. I'm not going to play this game anymore. The quests are gone, and people would quit playing. So there are two things you can do in that situation. You can get rid of quests entirely so people don't expect them, or you can take the time and effort and energy to populate your entire world with quests and change the leveling experience from straight grinding of mobs to completing and turning in quests. I wonder which one they did. <laughs> exactly. And I mean this was revolutionary. It's it's hard to believe now. I mean this is all still fairly recent history quite frankly, but it's hard to believe now that, 
you know, there was a time when MMOs didn't have tons of quests. Yeah, it was all just, yeah, you see those chappies over there? Go slaughter them 16 bazillion times. Oh, congratulations. You're now a new level. Oh, goody. Quite frankly, I mean, for me, certainly that's tedious. Obviously, there are a few hundred thousand people that really enjoy doing that in EverQuest. I mean, there are people that like that. But for a large portion of the population, that is just going to be tedious. Explanation point. You're never going to get mainstream acceptance of MMOs under that system, which is why there had never been a mainstream success in MMOs. And Blizzard was smart enough to see that they could change this and open up the game even more to casuals by implementing a worldwide quest system. So that was a lot of work. Yep, but it goes back to their entire DNA. Let's change the thing. We go back to the Lost Vikings. It's not just lemmings with Vikings. Let's make this really appealable and let's make this so that it has a appeal to everyone in the market by just having three Vikings instead of a mass horde of Vikings mm-hmm. and make them really work well. Instead of having this whole fight everything until they die, let's just have some quests. And yeah, it's going to take some more effort to do that. But hey, we can use that lore guy. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I mean, what what is there to say about World of Warcraft? I mean, it launches and it's pretty big right away. It's bigger than they ever thought it would be. It suddenly has millions upon millions of users. And, you know, they launch in Asia and get millions and millions of more users. And, you know, at its peak, it's down from its peak now. At its peak, it has like more than 12 million subscribers, concurrent subscribers. I mean, it's just... It takes it's it dwarfs anything that the Blizzard had ever done before. <laughs> yeah, it's been their cash cow for many, many years. It's really surprising. It's lasted as long as it has. There have been many MMOs that have risen and fallen in the meantime. There's a constant speculation of when will Blizzard's MMO World of Warcraft die? Will mm. it be with this expansion or that expansion? There's some expansions that even draw us back in occasionally. Absolutely. It's old. It's dated by this point, at least from a the technical stuff. It ha- I imagine it does have some limitations with its engine, but the fact that they're still able to add to it and expand upon it and try to really advance the game. They had a, with one of the expansions, they redid a lot of the artwork. With Cataclysm, I believe it was. They completely redid artwork. They completely redid all sorts of things that were limitations on the original game in order to bring it up to date. Well, and of course, it's that Blizzard style again, too, right? Because we've already got this established Blizzard look, particularly in the Warcraft universe, but even in other areas, that is not quite so realistic. It's more cartoony. It's more deformed. It's bright colors, deformed characters cartoonish. So World of Warcraft obviously looks a little dated now. Something that comes out in 2004 is going to look a little dated now. But it doesn't look as dated as many other games do from that time period because it was never going for a photorealistic look. It was always going for a stylized look, and it turns out that that stylized look is fairly timeless. The other thing that really helps it, and this goes back to the lore, and kind of what Chris Metzen did for the company, 
you know, we talked about a little bit how lore just means that there's a lot of backstory and a lot of development. It doesn't mean that they've planned out every aspect of their universe in a coherent way. It just so happens that the lore that Chris Metzen and others at Blizzard had developed for the game series turned into this kind of everything works in WoW. Yeah, pretty much. You want Lovecraftian horror? Throw it in WoW. You want steampunk? Throw it in WoW. You want <laughs> Ferengi, gaseous Ferengi creatures? Throw them in WoW. I mean, it's, it's just everything fits. So you can constantly keep it fresh because you have enough lore to keep people coming back. People are following the arcs of the races and the characters and the plots. But the lore is not so constraining that you can't just throw anything you want into it. Yeah, you can throw anything. You have some sci-fi in it, like super advanced technology operating around and doing things with lasers. And like, yeah, you got guys with axes and swords against robots with lasers, but yeah, it works. Why not? And so I think those are the two things. The fact that the lore is flexible enough to invite many, many types of stories And the fact that the art style is kind of timeless is the reason that WoW can keep going as strong as it has. And obviously it slipped from its peak, but it still has several million subscribers and it can keep going the way it has, even though it's such an old game because of those elements. And those are elements of Blizzard's style that were established very early. We talked about how that timeless cartoony style really came out of their console experience and their need to be bright, bold, and cutesy on those systems. And then they transplanted that over to their computer work. And then, of course, the lore stuff, it's just they had a guy in Chris Metzen that was fascinated by that kind of thing and started dreaming up lore for all their games. And so they had this other element. And so that's kind of the Blizzard style that keeps WoW going. WoW doesn't just change Blizzard's course. WoW really changes the course of the entire industry. And I'm not just talking about the fact that it makes MMOs big. I mean, obviously it does. It's also a huge impact on the business because at this point they are under the parent company Vivendi. They're part of Vivendi Games, which is part of Vivendi Entertainment, which is part of Vivendi or whatever the the corporate ladder is. The rest of what they're doing is not doing very well. Vivendi Games is not doing that great. They don't really have much in the way of console publishing capability. The Vivendi Games unit, which you can trace all the way back to Cuck International, CUC International, buying Sierra and Davidson Associates, is very much PC-centric, computer-centric, because Sierra, as we talked about, refused, Ken Williams absolutely refused to ever be on console, because console nearly killed him at the beginning of his company. So there was no console division at Sierra. Davidson, they're in edutainment. They're on computers. They don't have a console division. Blizzard had done console games in the Super NES period, but once Warcraft and all of that took off, I mean, they were a uh, PC company, a computer game company now. They weren't console people. And then one time they tried to do it again with Nova Covert Ops for the Xbox. They like, eh, no. Mm -hmm. At this period of time... The PC market is really starting to fade. The PC market's in pretty big decline overall, and it's the console market that is really where the money is. Vivendi is just not experiencing much success with the rest of its portfolio, the Sierra stuff and all that. They 
try to start a console publishing group. They bring in Tom Pettit, who for a very long time had been the president of Sega's arcade division, to establish a new console group within Vivendi. Even though they're doing their jobs fine or whatever, it's kind of too little too late. It really feels like they're not going to be that successful in this. And Vivendi starts looking to sell the company. Vivendi is starting to look at dumping their computer game stuff. In this same period of time, Vivendi has basically overextended itself. It's a utility company, as we said, that decided to be an entertainment company. And the chairman of the company really leveraged the company to get into all these entertainment businesses. And so the larger Vivendi parent is kind of disintegrating. The chairman that did all this is thrown out and the company's reeling. They do sell Universal at some point in here. They're starting to divest a lot of their entertainment properties, though not all of them. So the parent's falling apart. The game stuff is kind of out of sync with reality. And they're looking to dump the company, quite frankly. And this even affects Blizzard. Because at this point, the Blizzard North people are starting to work on Diablo 3. They are very unsettled by the whole Vivendi thing that's going on and the rumors that everything's going to be sold. I mean, there's rumors all the time Blizzard's going to be sold, the games unit's going to be closed, all of this. They decide that they want more direct input with Vivendi about what's going on. They want certain guarantees about their future because they're feeling very unsettled about this because they're a subsidiary of a subsidiary of a subsidiary. They're really low down the totem pole. And just because Blizzard survives, does Blizzard North survive? Uh, Who knows? So they're getting kind of nervous and they want more input and they're not getting it. And so finally, Bill Roper, who had been placed in charge of Blizzard North uh, at some point in here, he had started with Blizzard South. Bill Roper, David Brevik, and the Schaefers, they leave. They get the heck out of Dodge. Bill Roper founds Flagship Studios that does the Hellgate London MMO that is a failure, but they leave. What year was this? 2003, I believe. That would make sense. Blizzard North ultimately shuts down as a result of this. It really doesn't recover from that. So even Blizzard is affected a little bit by all of this. I thought that because I remember meeting Bill Roper at E3. Uh-huh. I was like, wait a second, if he left, how did <laughs> I meet him at E3? Yes. And then World of Warcraft happened. Yes, it was pretty major. I remember seeing an early test of it when I went to E3. It looked impressive then. Now it's released and everyone wanted their hands on it. For my birthday, one of my friends actually bought it for me and said, we're playing this. That's right. World of Warcraft is huge, and it pretty much single-handedly turns around Vivendi's ideas on the game business. They decide, maybe we want to be in this after all. They back off on selling the game business, and not only that, but now they are looking to strengthen their console business that is fairly weak, because historically Sierra and those companies didn't have that arm of of the company. Meanwhile, the entire rest of the industry is now trying to frantically copy what Blizzard has done in the MMO space. And so at the confluence of these two ideas, Vivendi wanting to boost console, everyone else wanting to boost online PC, stands the company Activision. 
Activision, as we know, because we've done episodes on them, is the the first third-party developer. They went through a rough patch in the 80s. They go bankrupt. They're purchased by Bobby Kotick. And then Bobby Kotick slowly but surely rebuilds Activision into a powerhouse company. At this point in time, the mid-2000s, Activision is the second largest third-party publisher behind Electronic Arts in terms of market capitalization. It has gone from success to success to success throughout the late 90s and early 2000s with the Tony Hawk franchise, with the Call of Duty franchise, with the Guitar Hero franchise. In each case, Activision invested in an independent developer and provided them support as they developed their game in return for publishing it, and then kind of engulfed that publisher whole to make them part of the Activision family. Guitar Hero worked a little differently than that, but that's certainly how it worked with Tony Hawk and Call of Duty. So this is a company that is definitely on the rise, has moved from strength to strength, has made a lot of canny acquisitions, and Bobby Kotick really knows what he's doing on the business side of the video game industry, as much as fans like to critique the fact that he treats games as a business and not a happy fun time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, there's no doubting that uh, he's really good at doing the business. Now he needs to get in the MMO space because this is the next huge thing. And Activision is always kind of good at figuring out where the trends are and moving along those trends. Sometimes they're the trendsetter, but more often they figure out how to slide into already developing trends. So they need an MMO. Unlike a lot of the other companies that decide the same thing, they decide that they're not going to spend the millions and millions of dollars it takes to develop an MMO. They're going to go out and buy one. And what better MMO to buy than World of Warcraft? Especially since Vivendi, for a long time, has been indicating that they want to get out of this business. So Bobby Kotick comes to Vivendi and says, we would like to buy Blizzard from you. Well, at this point, Vivendi has done a complete 180. They want to stay in the business now, as we said, because World of Warcraft has done so well. But they know, like we said, that they're very weak in the console space. Activision is very strong in the console space. And remember, Vivendi is still a huge conglomerate. So Activision may be the second largest third-party developer. Its, its game business is bigger than Vivendi's games business. But Vivendi is a far bigger company and a far better capitalized company than Activision is. So when Bobby Kotick comes to Vivendi, they're like, no, 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 no. Really, what should happen is we should buy you and you can control the combined company because they recognized Kotick's business acumen. You can control this division that we're going to build. You can be in charge of the whole thing and you can run this Blizzard company that you like so much, but we should acquire you. It's like going into the lion's den. Hey, I want to buy this uh, steak off of you, Mr. Lion. And Lion goes, I'm going to turn you into steak. <laughs> except, yeah, except not quite because Bobby Kotick is going to be allowed to run this whole thing. Fine, we're making you the butcher. <laughs> and Bobby Kotick's like, that's interesting. And so he meets with Mike Morhaime 
once uh, Alan Adham leads, leaves the company in 2004, Mike Morhaim steps into his role as president of Blizzard Entertainment. So he meets with Mike Morhaim and they talk it over and talk about what they could do and, and how that would work for everybody and whether Blizzard would be happy with Bobby and Bobby would be happy with Blizzard and all of that, because Blizzard is the key part of this deal. I mean, obviously, there's all these other things like Sierra and whatnot that Vivendi also has, but meh. It's all about the Blizzard and the Activision. Right. So if pretty much if Blizzard's unhappy, you're going to unravel the Golden Goose. Right. So they meet and they feel each other out and everything seems kind of copacetic. So Bobby Kotick agrees to the deal. And in 2008, you get Activision Blizzard, which immediately becomes the largest third party publisher in the business, takes them ahead of Electronic Arts. It's World of Warcraft that did that. I mean, World of Warcraft literally changed the face of the video game industry by driving the creation of this Activision Blizzard conglomerate, which at this point is owned by Vivendi. But Bobby Kotick gets to, to stay in charge. Vivendi buys Activision, but the Activision people get to control everything, pretty much. That situation persists until 2013, when Vivendi finally does decide that, hey, we do want to get out of the game business after all, and sells their share in the company back to Kotick and Kotick's friends, and Activision Blizzard becomes an independent company once again. So today, that's, that's independent. It's not controlled by Vivendi. And Bobby Kotick, of course, is still in charge. He's been in charge of Activision since 1991. That's a pretty long <laughs> run for a CEO. And it's been successful that entire time and keeps getting more successful all the time. The, he is probably the most genius business person that has ever run a video game company. I mean, I don't think it's probably even close. Whatever Pretty you, impressive. Whatever you say about his practices or his view on games or his view on business or whatever, because I know a lot of people are critical of all of that, you can't deny the man's business acumen. I mean, you just can't. So through all of this, of course, Blizzard stays Blizzard. Blizzard is the company that is allowed to do its own thing in its own way. And some people speculate there's more microtransactions at Blizzard now than there used to be. You can buy mounts, you can buy character transfers, you can buy all this stuff. Some people think that that's the Activision influence. It could just be it's tying in with how things are just going. Exactly. And it's how Blizzard has known, hey, this is how things are going. We should experiment with this and do it in our own Blizzard way do it in a right way that is good for gamers because we are gamers. We've already seen that with how they did multiplayer and bring that all around. I don't think anyone would begrudge them their vision there. And yeah, there's some people who have some qualms with it. I have some qualms with it, but for better or worse with microtransactions, Blizzard so far seems to be doing it right. Yeah, yeah, comparatively speaking. And and like you said, I mean, some of that is just a sign of the time. So is some of that Activision's influence? Maybe. It could be. But it could also be Blizzard recognizing what needs to happen. But regardless of that side of things, there's no doubt that Activision has allowed Blizzard to keep its complete creative freedom in deciding what it wants to do. And they continue to be innovative 
we don't want to talk too much about the recent history just because it's hard uh, to have context on the recent history. And it just develops into speculation. I mean, there are a couple of very good examples of that in Hearthstone and Overwatch. Both games kind of revolved around, okay, what do we do now? I mean, obviously, they're still doing the sequels. They did Diablo 3. They did StarCraft 2 and StarCraft 2 and StarCraft 2. Yes. Well, <laughs> there's some uh, delay between the expansions. So they're still doing that. But there was this fear that they were doing all of these big games, these big MMOs, these big multi-part games like StarCraft 2 and, and all of that. There was the fear that they might miss out on kind of the next thing especially with free-to-play coming, especially with mobile coming, especially with smaller teams being relevant again. It's more of a how do we become viable in a sense with casual gamers. And I think that's really what Hearthstone and Overwatch appeal to is more of a casual gamer. Uh, Hearthstone especially. And with Hearthstone, it really comes down to, again, their love of games. They decide that they want to do something with a smaller team. So they create a small team called Team 5 to experiment with smaller concepts. And they decide that they love collectible card games. They're Magic players. They've been Magic players since Magic existed. So they decide we're going to create a collectible card game in computer game form, but we're going to make it more accessible. We're going to have groups of cards, heroes and and minions, and set groups of cards that play in specific sequences. And then the game is going to tell you what cards you have in your hand and what sequence to play them in. If you want that level of, of control, you can practically have the game play itself. We're going to get rid of cards where you are affecting the other player on that player's turn. You only play cards on your turn. You don't play them on the other player's turn. No instants and interrupts in magic terms. Not that magic has interrupts anymore, but anyway, none of that. So keeping it simple and accessible, but still tying into this collectible card game mechanic. And that's how you get Hearthstone. Hearthstone is free to play, and Hearthstone has become quite a big thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. On Twitch, you can certainly catch a number of people streaming them playing. Yep. Overwatch, on the other hand, came from a place of failure. At the height of World of Warcraft, there was very much the thought of what do we do next? What comes after World of Warcraft? I mean, they're keeping releasing expansions, but they felt like at some point they had to evolve past that. So they started something called Project Titan, which was going to be the next world-changing MMO from Blizzard. The person that was kind of in charge of Titan, one of the people in charge, was a guy named Jeffrey Kaplan. Jeffrey Kaplan had been brought in as one of the primary quest designers on World of Warcraft. He was actually in Rob Pardo's guild in EverQuest. And so that's how they knew each other. Then he was hired into Blizzard to be one of the main quest people and then He took on a more and more prominent role in World of Warcraft as time went on. But then he left World of Warcraft to do this Titan thing. And Titan failed. It fell apart. I mean, it was apparently a mess. Obviously, we don't know 
that much now. Maybe 20 years from now, we'll get the full story of what happened with Titan. But it failed. And so they had a team that didn't have a product anymore. And they couldn't keep all of them on a new thing. But they wanted to keep at least the core of that team together and give them something else to do. They also had a bunch of lore built up, too. Mm -hmm. So Jeff Kaplan was a big FPS guy, first-person shooter guy, going way back. He had been a big Quake player. He had been a big Half-Life player. He did a lot of map building, map designing in those games. He didn't really mod in the sense that he did total conversions or or modifications to weapons or any of that kind of thing, or graphics or whatnot, but he, he built levels in those games. And he really enjoyed the FPS style of that time, which he felt had largely gone by the wayside. Games like Quake especially, this is more Quake than Half-Life, Games like Quake had this kind of bonkers, futuristic setting, particularly Quake 2. Quake 1 had this whole Lovecraftian thing going on. Had this bonkers setting, and it just, it had all of these flashy moves that you could do that were not necessarily intended by the developers, but which became legend, like the rocket jump, the rocket, you know, and using the grappling hook to sail all around the map. He liked these big futuristic settings, and these flashy moves. And he felt that FPSs, after kind of the whole World War II thing, after the whole Call of Duty Medal of Honor thing, had evolved in a more realistic direction. Even the ones that took place in the future, like Halo, were more near future and were less outrageous than the games that he remembered playing in the 90s, like the Quake games. He wanted to bring that back. At the same time, he wanted something team-based. And certainly the leading team-based game at that point was Team Fortress 2. Of course, Team Fortress actually started as a Quake mod. Yep. <laughs> so Team Fortress 2 was all fine and good, but it kind of devolved. The people played bigger matches, like 12-on-12 kind of matches, and he felt like a lot of the individualism and a lot of the tactics of it kind of disappeared in the grind when you had that many players playing. Not to mention those maps were particularly large. Right, exactly. So he wanted something that recaptured kind of the craziness of those Quake-style games, and he wanted something that brought in the team-based nature of Team Fortress, but with more strategy involved in it. The result of that is Overwatch which kind of harkens back to those old games, but while being more team-focused in a modern way. The other big thing, of course, was the heroes. They wanted, they didn't want classes. There were roles, of course, but they didn't want classes. They wanted to have a bunch of heroes, but they wanted each hero to truly be distinct. And they wanted there to be some interplay between some heroes being better against others and then have that mechanic where when you die, you can switch heroes so that you can modify your tactics on the fly to better counter the team you're currently playing. He really wanted that strategy element in there. So you put all of those influences together and you get Overwatch. And this comes back to the same thing that all of the Blizzard games come back to, which is we are gamers. We love playing games. 
these are the games that we love or the games that we loved in the past. We are going to take our love. We are going to repackage it for a casual audience so that it is accessible to a casual audience while still maintaining some level of interest for the hardcore. And we are going to put out this game and it is going to be a success. And that's that's Hearthstone. That's Overwatch. And that's probably the next, uh, you know, 10 Blizzard games that come out as well, whatever those may be. Definitely. One question I have, and this harkens back to the beginning of the episode with Diablo 1. There is an expansion for Diablo 1 that was not Blizzard. I actually have it over my shoulder here. What do you know about that? Well, that was just, um, they wanted an expansion for more money. I mean, you know, the parent company wants an expansion for more money. Blizzard North is busy and doesn't really have time to do an expansion. So it's farmed out to Sierra, which is also part of the conglomerate now. It's not very good. And it's kind of because of that experience that Blizzard North is keen to keep control of the expansion process with the second game and and do the Lord of Destruction expansion themselves. There's really not much more to the story than that. Arguably, that could be the only misstep they had. Well, I mean, they've had a few other missteps. I mean, the the canceled games are definitely missteps. They had a huge misstep with Diablo 3 when it had the real money auction house. Absolute (laughs) disaster. Not everything that they do turns to gold. They've had their missteps just like anyone else. But they've had enough massive hits that they still keep going along. Definitely. And they have always provided hours of entertainment, and I've bought nearly everything they've had. Nearly. Not all of it. Mm -hmm. That pretty much covers Blizzard from birth to righteous hellfire. Sure. Or something. (laughs) I don't know. So, two episodes on Blizzard. We can't pick three, so (laughs) what do we go into next time? Well... We've done this once before. Sometimes it's good to stop and take stock of where our knowledge is on things at any given time, because I'm constantly researching video game history as I slowly write those books that I'm supposed to be writing. I'm constantly interviewing new people, and I'm constantly getting new stories. So there are so many times where we do an episode and we cover a topic well, based on the knowledge at the time, and then a month later, I have new mo- new knowledge. We've already done the episode, so it's too late. Far too late. So I thought it would be fun to kind of basically go episode by episode. And not every episode's going to have something, so this is not going to be five hours long. But basically go episode by episode and discuss some of the things that I didn't know at the time we did the episode that I know now and tell some of these new stories that I've learned that don't really fit in to any broad topic at this point because it's a topic we've already covered, but are still worth getting out there. So we'll kind of do a a catch-up storytelling episode. Sort of a story of new people you interviewed, new data you've come across in research. I know you you and I talk uh, privately about... All the new scores you get in uh, interviews. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I'm sure some of those people will show up. So we will cover some of the 
Check out our show notes at com, where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Give us feedback at feedback at theycreateworlds.com and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcasts. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.